Uh, If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 3. If you are borrowing a Bible in the seat in front of you, it's page 977. I've done this a few times at the gas station where I, I pull in and I park at the pump, get out of my car, I pay for the gas, I open my gas tank, and then I've got to stick my head in the window just to tell the kids to stop throwing Cheerios at each other. And then I come back out, I grab the diesel, I step towards the van, and, and being distracted with the kids before, I, I, I finally kind of come back to what I'm doing here, and I, and I realize that this gas station uses a different color gas nozzle at the pump. And I think, that's weird. Wait, that's diesel. Have you ever wondered what would happen if you put diesel into a vehicle that requires gas? First of all, don't do it. Uh, I didn't do it. I almost did it, but don't do it. Uh, second of all, if, as a, I'm not a mechanic, but if your car would start, it would eventually stop and no longer run because your car was made for one type of fuel. So to put in any other type of fuel, it would render the engine powerless and basically non-functional. Today, as we wrap up in Ephesians chapter 3, the first half of this letter, we're going to see that the fuel we need to accomplish what God is doing in us, in the church, and in the world is only one kind. That if we look for fuel or power from any other source, we will not be able to accomplish what he wants to do through us. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees. Now, I just want to stop there before and and set this up. Paul is going to actually go into a prayer here. But before we ask, what does he pray? We need to ask, why does he pray? Because he says, for this reason, I think that assumes that we should know why it is. What is this reason? Now, we've been walking through Ephesians for the last eight weeks. And he's been setting this up. And then now he goes to pray. So we have to ask the good question of Bible study is why? Why does he pray here? Why does he even pray? In general, prayer is great. Whatever God is going to reveal through Paul in this prayer is going to be great. But to better understand what he prays, we need to understand why he prays. So we have to look back at what already, what already has been said. Now, in, in the book of Ephesians, we've seen how, what God has done, what God is doing, and, and it is amazing. We see in chapter 1 that God is working powerfully in the lives of believers whom he's saved. He's establishing them and equipping them in their salvation. In, in chapter 2, it talks about how God is powerfully working the salvation out of those believers. And not only is he reconciling people to God, but he's reconciling people to themselves. The people that were once hostile to each other, he's making them into one new man. In chapter three, Paul, Paul describes this hidden mystery that has now been revealed. That is that, that not just Jews are being saved, but Gentiles as well. And, and he's making this body, this, this church. And, and through the church, He says that the goal is that it would display the wisdom of God. So this is where we have come so far. And now we're going to end with a prayer. And I want you just to notice the last verse, verse 21. To him be the glory throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And and so this is why God does any of this. It is all for his glory.
So if I were to summarize Ephesians 1 to 3 up until this point, into one sentence, I would, I would say this. I would say, God's ultimate goal is to receive eternal praise by displaying his manifold wisdom with his infinite power through incomprehensible love accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a lot to take, but I think that's somewhat the point. We, when we see what God is doing, should be amazed and our brains should hurt a little bit, I think. Because Paul has been describing this with words like immeasurable riches and unsearchable riches. These are words that mean we cannot figure these things out. We cannot measure them. We cannot search them so much that we know them fully. So if you start off a little bit confused today, that's okay. I'm going to try and help us. But more importantly, God has given us his spirit within us as believers and in this place to help us understand the truth of his word. And so we need to pray and ask him to open the eyes of our hearts that we would behold these wonderful things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you not only for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your justice and your righteousness for all that you are, but also that you have saved us out of that and also that you've given us your spirit to live inside of us, to dwell within us. And so I ask, Father, today that as we read your word, what you've revealed for us, what we should understand, I pray that you would help us to understand this. And not just understand this truth, but live this truth individually and as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, why does Paul pray? And then we'll look at what Paul prays. Why can't Paul just jump into chapter 4? Well, because he's, we've looked so far that God has saved his people, he's blessed them and he's done these things, but it says that he's recreated them for good works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. So the good works are about to be explored. Chapter four, five, and six is here are what the good works are. This is how you should walk. You used to walk in sin, now you need to walk in good works. But he stops to pray here. And what he does here is he asks God for power, for fuel, The only power that will help us to be able to live the way that God wants us to live. And so let's read this now in Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. I'll go through the whole thing to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, as I studied this passage, I realized that there was actually a helpful flow to it that was actually a little bit unique. I think think sometimes when we pray, often we hear prayers or we pray prayers ourselves that are more like a list of things that, oh, we need this or we want to ask about that or "We we need wisdom for this and power for this and different things. But here, it seems like Paul is only asking for one thing, 
that eventually moves on to the next thing and the next thing. So this prayer is almost like dominoes. And I want you to, I want to show that to you and maybe it'll be helpful for you as it was helpful for me. But in verses 14 and 15, we start. It says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, do you notice in the Bible that God is often used metaphors and, and figurative language and described in different ways? Sometimes he's described as the Lord of hosts, and sometimes he is the Holy One. Sometimes he is good or, or righteous or the judge. And the reason why people do this when they're writing this, these scriptures is because they're appealing to that attribute of who God is. Of course, he's all of these things, but this one in particular, I think we do this as well. When I pray and confess my sin, asking God to forgive me, I'm appealing to his grace and his mercy. That when I need deliverance from a situation, I appeal to his power to do it and his justice, that he will do it rightly and the right, the right thing will, be, will triumph. And so here, when Paul prays and asks for strength, He's actually praying to God as a father. And so it's entirely right and good that we think about God's fatherly attributes as we walk through this prayer. So we know that the Bible teaches that God is like a father. We know that Jesus taught his disciples to, when he taught them how to pray, he says, pray to your father in heaven. And and Jesus on one occasion was talking to his disciples and he says to them, look at the birds, look at the flowers, Everything that they need, every day that they are alive, God provides for them. And then he turns and says, now look at you. And he says this in Luke chapter 12. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. So that should be comforting. That he knows that you need them. And he is like a father. It continues. Instead, seek his kingdom... And these things will be added to you. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is what? Your your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. God, like a father, has the good pleasure of caring for and loving and taking care of his children. And he knows what they need. And this should cause us not to fear, not to worry. This is a good thing. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus also teaches us again. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So he's saying you should, you should seek these things and you'll get them. He says it again. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So basically he is saying that God, your father, has everything you need. And like a child, you just need to come and ask him for it. And like a father, he will supply it. He continues with this analogy. He starts to talk about sons and fathers. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And so this is a great and wonderful thing. We see this in our own lives as as fathers and as, as, as trying to take care of our children, but that is only a fraction of the kind of father that God is. And so he's saying, come and ask and I have everything. We see this throughout Ephesians already. This is the fifth time that Paul has referred to God as a father. 
And if we look at, well, does his father give us good things? Is it his pleasure to do so? If we go back to chapter one alone, it says that he has blessed us. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. More than, a, more than we could ever ask for. It says that out of his love, in love, he predestined us for adoption. When it describes the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, that he gives us in abundance like a father would. It says that we have an inheritance. It says that we have a guarantee of that inheritance. And he doesn't just try really hard to do this. He uses his immeasurably great love in us and through us. And it's this power, it's this power that Paul is asking for in this prayer. And he asks as if God was his father and that he would provide for his child. Now, Paul asks for God's power and he asks for an amount. It says, according to the riches of his glory. So, so how much is that? I think you can understand this in two ways, but I think we're only supposed to understand this in one way. Let me give you an example. Uh, two millionaires are going to donate to charity. So the first millionaire goes to the bank, looks at his accounts, sees how much money he has, and says, I will give some of my money because I have a lot of money. Then the second millionaire goes to the bank, looks at his account, sees how much money he has, and says, I'm going to give so much that people know how much I have. Now, the first millionaire is going to give some. It could be any amount because he has extra. He has an abundance. But when the second millionaire gives, he says, I'm going to give richly because I am rich. Now, when God, uh, or when Paul asks God for power here, he's asking not just for some, because God has a lot. Why doesn't he share some of this? He asks for an amount that would compare to the riches of his glory, his greatness. So in, in effect, Paul is asking God, he says, would you give the Ephesian believers so much power that they would see how great you really are? That's how much power he is asking for. And would you give it to them like a father would to his children when they ask? And so in 16, verse 16, it says, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power, that amount, through the Spirit in your inner being. And so we've seen that God has recreated us to walk in good works. In chapter 2, it says we walked in sins and trespasses. So now that we are to walk in these good works, we are going to need power to do them. So Paul is praying for power to strengthen our inner being so that we're able to live this way. And I think if we were to reflect on our own lives, it wouldn't take long before we realize we don't do these good works, these things that God has called us to, anywhere near perfect. And so we're going to need strength. But I think it's also at this point that we're often tempted to say or think something like, uh, you know, I'm doing pretty well at this good works thing. Like, I'm, it's going fine. Or maybe, you know, I don't need any extra power. I'm, I'm good, but everyone else seems to need more than I do. Or maybe you just think, if I tried a little harder, yeah, I could probably do a little bit better. But this kind of thinking undermines what God is doing in his people. That he has saved us, but not just saved us, he's actually working and changing our hearts for a reason. And so our strength isn't supposed to be outer strength, 
but inner strength. And so we need to understand what this inner strength is. Paul says that they would be strengthened with power through, their, through the spirit in your inner being. So what is this inner being? And we need to realize that the church is not supposed to be made up of bodybuilders who have physical power, but to be made up of people with spiritual power to build the body. And so we've got to ask for God to strengthen our inner being. So what is our inner being? Well, Paul helps us understand this in the book of Romans in chapter 7, where he also gives a reason why we can't just do this on our own strength. He says, and maybe you've felt this way before, verse 15 of chapter 7 in Romans, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire, and this is the key point here, for I have the desire to do what is right, and you may as well, but not the ability or the power or the strength to carry it out. So see the need here that Paul needs to be strengthened in his inner being because there is a battle going on within him that, that the spirit has entered his heart, his inner being, his mind, in such a way that he now wants to do these good works and is given the power to do them. But the sin that is still there is waging war against the spirit. So there's this battle. And, and if Paul says, I, I want to do these good things, but I don't have the power to carry it out. And so in verse 21, still in chapter 7 of Romans, it says, So I find it to be a law That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's always there. For I delight in the law of of God in my inner being. So that's the phrase there, inner being. But I see in my members another law, sin, waging war against the law of my mind. Again, now, my mind is another phrase for my inner being. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So our inner beings need to be given strength. They need to be strengthened by God. Because every single one of us here cannot overcome sin if we try to do this in our own strength. It will never happen. So we need this divine power to strengthen our inner beings or we will eventually just sin. So why does God supply immeasurable power to believers? Number one, so that your spirit is strengthened. So do you pray for that? Do you ask your heavenly father for the power to strengthen your inner being? I think we should. And I don't think it only affects the individual. I think it affects the church. That we collectively need to be praying this. See, the church is made up of individuals, but coming together, if we're all strengthened in our inner being, together the church is stronger. And so we need to ask for this this kind of power. Maybe what you need to do is is look through this, this passage again later today and pray through it line by line or just read it prayerfully or as your own prayer. But we need to ask for strength or we will not be able to do what God has called us to do. But the best part is not only will God supply this strength and offer it to us, but we can come to him as his children, that he is our father that loves to give his children good gifts to give us the kingdom, to give us whatever it is that we need. And he will give us according to the riches of his glory. But this is not an end in itself. 
We aren't just wanting to pray for and receive power, as good as that is. This is a prerequisite for something else. And so the first domino falls and it hits the next one. Look at verse 17. It says, so that, we pray for that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if you were thinking like I was when I read that, you're thinking, doesn't Christ dwell in my heart through faith already? Why would Paul ask for power to be strengthened in his inner being so that Jesus can do something he already does? And that's a good question. Because at salvation, Christ enters our hearts and does dwell in our hearts through faith. But Paul here has made up his own word and it's translated dwell. He's actually put two words together. The words are dwell and down. So so Christ wants to dwell down in us and we need the strength for that to happen. But maybe we're not praying for that strength. Let Let me explain this. People who buy an old house, they understand that when they move in and want to make this place a home, they're going to have to do some work. Renovations are in order, not just to fix the things that are broken, but just to to make it your own home. So you rip off the wallpaper and you apply new paint. You, You pull up the carpets and you lay down new floors. You bring in your furniture. You set everything up, every room the way you want it. And slowly over time, this becomes your home. Now, in the same way, Christ enters our hearts when we are saved. But as he looks around in all the rooms of our lives, of our hearts, he sees sin stained in every room. Because just recently, we have loved sin. We walked in sin and darkness. And so now this is not a place for the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, to dwell. So for him to dwell down, to to make his home there, he needs to do some renovations. And this is where he begins to work in us and change us on the inside, which affects the outside. And so he comes to us and he says, I need to remove this sin and I want to replace it with righteousness. And in that way, we need to allow him to throw things out that we've just gotten used to or fix things that have just been broken that we can't fix on our own. And we have to allow him to work. And this is what Paul refers to as putting on the new self. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says this. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, Why does God supply power to strengthen the inner being of believers? Number two, so that Christ can make your heart his home. Would you say that Christ is at home in your heart? Or is he more of a tolerated guest? And then when a guest comes into your home, you you don't really expect them to, and they shouldn't be thinking of moving your furniture or throwing things out. But sometimes we have these strongholds in our lives of sin. And like ugly wallpaper, Christ wants to rip that out, that sin, and replace it, make it new again, and fill us with and dwell down in our hearts. This is what he wants to do. But this is why we need the power to strengthen us in our inner beings, because we won't let him. Because it hurts. And it's change. And it's entirely foreign to our old way of life. But Christ wants to do this in us. So we pray for the power 
that we would be strengthened in our inner beings to allow him to be the Lord and to, to fill our hearts with his reign and make his home in our hearts. But this is not an end in itself. As good as it is, we aren't just supposed to have Christ dwelling in our hearts. This is a prerequisite for something else. And so the next domino hits and it begins to fall. Look at verses 17 to 19. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So what this next thing is, is it's leading us to the understanding of the love of God, the love of Christ. So as, as Jesus dwells in our heart, we become rooted and grounded in love. Because if you go back to chapter one, it was the love of God that predestined us for adoption as sons. It was the love of God that saved us. It says the, the great love with which he loved us. And this word for love in the Greek is the word agape. You may have heard that before. But agape love is unique in that it doesn't wait for feelings of love to motivate a person. A lot of times we do things lovingly because we feel love towards that that person, let's say. But agape love does not wait to feel loving. It's a decision to give of yourself for the good of another. Now, most often the feelings are there with it, but it doesn't wait for the feelings. So when we read in John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world, he, he, he loved the world and the world didn't deserve it. The world couldn't even earn it. But yet he loved, he made the decision to, to give of himself. And what did he give? That he gave his one and only son. This is the agape love of God expressed through Christ. And now this son, it doesn't stop there. This son, for those who believe in him, wants to dwell in our hearts, make his home in our hearts. And therefore we become, when when he begins to dwell in our hearts, rooted. We are rooted in the love of Christ because everything he does is an act of love for us. So this means that as Christ is dwelling in our hearts, and he is working in our hearts that we are being not just experiencing the love of Christ, but we know it better and we begin to carry out these, this kind of love in our own lives as well. The, the language here is rooted and grounded. Grounded is just a firm establishment for, let's say, a building that will not crumble because it's founded upon something strong. And in this case, it is the love of Christ. The word rooted is the same thing. It's like a plant that has roots that goes deep down into the soil of the love of Christ that it not only is strong there, but it begins to bear the fruit of the love of Christ. And so it's interesting that experiencing the love of Christ roots us in such a way that it holds on to us that we can now begin to understand it further than we ever did before. Yet it is immeasurable. Paul uses this language, the breadth and length and height and depth. This is not, although they are measurement terms, we're not supposed to go out, find out how big it is, and come back with a number. The idea is that we would understand it by seeing that it extends in every direction as far as necessary. And so we must understand it, not in a, in a, in a value amount, but just that we understand it in its fullness, in its completeness. 
And so we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians how this works. That when we look at the love of Christ, it is so wide that it extends not just to God's special people in the Jews, but to Gentiles as well. We've seen how long it is that it extends from eternity past to eternity future. We've seen how high it reaches and that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we see how deep it goes, that it would reach down into the deepest levels of sin to redeem people there. And this is the love of Christ. And this is why you can't just have knowledge about it from reading this book. Although it's filled with the love of Christ, there comes a point where if we were to talk about it, you were trying to explain it to somebody, there comes a point where it would just be a wall. And you can't scale that wall until you begin to experience this love. It's not just intellectual. It's because we've experienced it. And so we can't just stop at this information in the scriptures. It has to transform us. We have to know it in a way that goes beyond. It surpasses knowledge. So why must Christ be at home in our hearts? Number three, so that you can know Christ's limitless love. Would you say that your knowledge of the love of Christ surpasses knowledge? I think sometimes we, we want answers and we go to the Bible or maybe we just have a desire to grow and to learn and we have a good desire that we want to be able to answer life's questions or maybe an unbeliever's questions by going to the scriptures. This is where the truth is found. And so to go there, to have good, solid, biblical answers or information is great. But sometimes we don't give it enough time to begin to transform us. It just informs us. That we need to allow God by his spirit to use this book, not just to inform us, but to transform us in our own lives. That it begins to change the way that we think and change the way that we live. Like on my wedding day, when I knew my wife and I could explain to you what she was like, who she is, there comes a point that now after 11 years, I can say, there's only so much that I can explain to you. You, you have to live and experience life with her to really know all that she is. And in the same way, to know the love of Christ, we can't just talk about it, although it's wonderful to talk about. We have to be transformed by the experience of, of him dwelling in our hearts so that we can know something that goes beyond knowledge. And so uh, my question is, do we really know the love of Christ? Have we prayed for the power to strengthen our inner beings, to allow Christ to dwell in our hearts and to know the love of Christ? But this is not an end in itself. As good as it is, we aren't just hoping to know and experience the love of Christ. This is a prerequisite for something else. And so the next domino hits the next one. Look at verse 19 at the end. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that. That you and I would be filled with all the fullness of God. Does anyone understand this? What does this even look like? This is, this is amazing language. It's almost ridiculous. <laughs> I, I mean, how am I supposed to explain this? 
I'm reading through different, I'm studying, I'm reading through different commentaries. There was one commentary that really helped me and it actually doesn't explain it all. It actually says this. It says, although incomprehensible in our earthly bodies, this, this idea of God filling us with all his fullness, it says, although incomprehensible in our earthly bodies, we must believe it and praise God for it. That this is what God wants to do. He is pleased. It brings him joy. He desires to fill us with all of himself. So infinite God pouring all of himself into finite beings. This is amazing. Yet this is what God wants to do. And this is where he leads us as we are strengthened and Christ dwells and we know the love of Christ, that he's filling us with all of his fullness. So if nothing else, we have to receive this as the word of God. This is what it says. This is a truth and it's wonderful truth. No one's going to argue that this is a bad thing. And whether we understand it in whatever degree we do, we need to believe it and praise God for it. But let me try to help us understand what he is referring to. Uh, in Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul says the same word filled. And I want to use that to try and help us understand this. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So what's this idea? Paul is taking two ideas, filled with wine or filled with the Spirit. Now what happens when someone is is drunk? They have, let's say in this case, they've drunk wine with alcohol and it begins to influence and control them, their mind and their decisions and therefore their actions. Now he says, don't do that. That leads to debauchery. But be filled rather with the Spirit, which will begin to influence and control you in such a way that it influences your decisions and therefore your actions. He's like, that leads you to godliness, to righteousness. This one leads you to debauchery. So he's comparing these two things and what we fill ourselves with. And in this case, it is all the fullness of God. It is the spirit of God himself that we would begin to reflect so much. We'd be filled so much that we reflect who God is that our decisions and our actions are in line with what God would do. To the point where Paul says elsewhere, to live is Christ. He says, if I'm alive and I've been filled with all the fullness of God, to live is Christ. He also says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That we could all say the same thing if we are filled with the Spirit. So why must we know the limitless love of Christ? Number four, so that you may be fully filled with God. That's an amazing idea and concept. Yet this is what God wants to do. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? It is his pleasure, his fatherly good pleasure to give us what we need. And what we need is to be filled with all of the fullness of him. And this is what we are led to pray for power, to strengthen our inner beings, that Christ dwells in our hearts, that we know his love and that we are filled with all the fullness of God. Yet, that isn't even the ultimate end. This is a prerequisite for something else. And it's actually the biggest domino that falls at the end. It is the ultimate purpose and goal of God. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is now done with his prayer for the Ephesians. He moves to a doxology now to praise God, to glorify God. And the way he describes it and the reason that he gives, one of his attributes is just this immeasurable power. And I love the way that he describes it. He says, there is nothing that you can ask him that he cannot do. And some of you are thinking, well, what about, if you, if you can think it, even if it doesn't exist yet, he can do it. This is the kind of power he has. And because it is his power that he works, he gets all the glory. It is all for the glory of God. You go back to chapter one. This is his ultimate goal. It, it explains what he's done for believers. And it says three times, to the praise of his glory. In chapter two, it describes that he saves sinners by grace. And then it says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. He gets the glory. Chapter three says that the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God. He gets the glory. So God plans, God initiates, God acts, God, God provides the power, and he gets all the glory for all eternity. 21 says, To him be glory in the church, which are the people in whom he is working, and in Christ Jesus, which is the one through whom he is working. To him be glory throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And this is where I got the idea for this sermon title. That we can not just have or ask for or try to get, but we have access to the infinite power of God to accomplish the ultimate goal of God. That we as his children can be, are, are offered this infinite strength to do these things, to be filled, and it's all his working in us so that when we do these good works that God prepared beforehand in advance for us to do, he gets all the glory and we get the joy of salvation, the joy of the spirit being filled to the full. And so why does God work his infinite power within believers? Number five, so that God receives perpetual praise, that it would never end. So when we align with God's ultimate goal, we have to see this. The way that he created humanity, he created humanity within the image of God. And why does he have the image of God within them? So that they live lives that reflect who God is. So they would make decisions. And they would rule and govern the earth in such a way that it would be just like God, just like God would. But when sin entered the world, it distorted and broke this image of God within humanity. And so from that, God had this plan to, to work in such a way, his infinite power, his infinite wisdom, his infinite grace and mercy, and all of his attributes came in, and he planned that he would save people from every background to make a church and display his glory for his glory for eternity. And so it is because we have access to this infinite power that we as individuals and together as the church can be a part of accomplishing the ultimate goal of God. Now, instead of praying myself, I want to pray this prayer to you. So why don't you stand with me as we close? And I just want to read this passage to us as Willingdon Church for the glory of God. It says, For this reason... 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be dismissed.